electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grosso, and Guy Adami. Tonight on a very busy Fast. It is an earnings extravaganza. We've got reports from Tesla, Ford, Microsoft, Advanced Micro Devices, and Visa all coming out moments ago. Everything is higher except for chip stock AMD, which is crashing. We've got full team coverage. Phil LeBeau monitoring both Tesla and Ford, getting ready to jump on those conference calls. Josh Lifton on the Microsoft beat. Deidre Bosa watching Visa and Contessa Brewer is watching Las Vegas Sands. But we start, of course, with breaking news. A massive sell-off on Wall Street. Stock losses accelerating into the close, closing on the dead Lows of the session, the Dow down a whopping 600 points, the Dow and S&P both erasing all of their gains for the year. And the big loser, the Nasdaq, down more than 4.5% today, having its worst day since August 2011. Everything from NVIDIA to Netflix to Amazon just getting crushed. So with the market seeming to spiral lower, is there any end in sight to this selling guy? Well, there's going to be an end in sight, but we started the show last night and we said, although it looked like the market rally gave us sort of an all-clear sign. We thought, you know what, maybe there's still some bad news ahead. And I didn't think it was going to be down 600 points today, the Dow, but here we are. So I think there is further downside. A couple Fridays ago, we had a conversation. Market, I think the S&P was down 5%. I said to Karen, I think it goes down another 7 or 8%. I'll stand by that. We're probably halfway there. That doesn't make this necessarily a bad thing. You're flushing out a lot of weak hands, and you're flushing out of a lot of stocks that, quite frankly, got ahead of themselves. Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley pretty much saying the same thing. So now's the time you sort of hunker down. You look at stocks that you've wanted to buy for the last five years, but unable to because they've just gotten away from you. Now they're getting into ranges where maybe may make sense. The problem with that is, Guy, I, I appreciate the rational view on this, and I think we're probably going lower, too, except for the fact that the velocity of this move is picking up steam. Uh, we're down 17% on semis in the month. We're down 14% on the transports. you got a dollar that's going higher. You've got macro data across Europe this morning and across the rest of the world that basically tells you it's getting a lot worse a lot faster. So the irony is here, after the bell, we've had some very good numbers, and we fell back on, on earnings, which are very strong in this country. But we've talked about that divergence. And to me, it's catching up with us right now. And I, you know, I felt I, panicky I today. For the first time, okay. for the first time it felt panicky. Because in the beginning of this, people were saying, what are the levels we should step in and buy? Today it was, where the, where's the support? I don't, I, they're looking for 25.32, the February lows. 25.32. The February lows. But 120 points I have below guys where telling me that support is 2,100. They're throwing, bears are throwing numbers out there sure. that you can't believe. It's not over yet. What'd you do today? I didn't do a lot today, although, I mean, I kind of find this fascinating, especially the last half hour where they're just absolutely puking out anything. I mean, it was a real puke. So for me, my biggest position is, is uh, Alphabet. A horrible day. Absolutely horrible day. And yet, I think it is so overdone, it's ridiculous. So that would be on my buy list. I have enough, but for my kids, that's something that would be number one on my buy list. Tomorrow is earnings. So it's going to be a big day it, for Alphabet. It could very well be make or break for tech. But, I mean, in terms of the, the trend that we've seen in technology, it's been clearly under pressure. It's been clearly the ATM in this sort of market, market downward pressure sort of days. And so where, where does that – where does the leadership come from at this point? If tech has rolled over, if we lost the momentum trade, if we've got information technology and communication services in correction territory, we don't have the participation of financials, which a lot of people thought would join no. in on the party. We don't have industrials. We don't have transports. What leads this market higher? That's, well, I mean, we need to answer that question. Well, let's answer. Let's talk about why it probably is headed this way in the first place. I think, and we've talked about this for a while, the fact that the Chinese market's down some 30 percent. Until the last couple of weeks, the U.S. has been unaffected by it. Tim talks about emerging markets all the time getting crushed. Currency, currency volatility's been nuts. Finally, we're starting to catch up. So to answer your question, 
what stems the tide. And we sort of saw a little bit of the other day. If the Chinese market can get on some solid footing, maybe they could actually lead us out of this. Now, I'm not suggesting that's going to happen, but I think that's where you need to find leadership. I think you need a good, I'm sorry, Tim, I think you need a good meeting at the end of November for that to take place. But I do think that the main concern is the Fed. I still believe it's the Fed. Now, is it China as well? Of course. But I still think it's the Fed. Hey, guys, don't forget about Europe. You know, by the way, this morning, European banks were really the focus. I think they're part of the reason for the volatility. Again, you the Italian cabinet saying we can't have a spread of more than 400 basis points over bonds, or if we do, we're going to have to recapitalize our banks. So people are very concerned. Guy's been talking about Deutsche Bank, which closed at all-time lows in Frankfurt today. Uh, and European banks are down 30 percent from their high since, you know, since June. So this is a major place. Remember, remember, Europe was really the systemic risk in this whole thing at one point. It wasn't even China. So it's been it's not that long ago that actually uh, this was really where we were concerned. I think the macro is very important. I think the beige book out today by the Fed was very important. Yes. Every single Fed, every single region talked about a lack of skilled labor that they're holding up on projects. People can't even fill jobs for elevator operators. I mean, this is a tough time for this economy. And, and, and there's price pressure. So, you know. Wage, wages going up. We've got prices going up because of the impact of tariffs, which is what we heard from a lot of the districts out of the Fed beige book. We're hearing now right. what you're saying, weakness in Europe, weakness in China, and we've got the Fed. So if you look back on the chart, that's, that's October, problems everywhere you look. October 3rd, Powell makes those comments in an interview. The market collapses. October 17th, the Fed minutes come out. So we, we traded up from the bottom about 4%. October 17th, you have those Fed minutes come out. We dissipate again and trade off again. So, so what, I get it. It's more than a couple the, of things. The, Fed, the Fed's commentary has been fairly consistent throughout right. this. So what is different? Is it is what is different earnings season and what we're starting to hear from corporate America in terms of the impact of tariffs and what they're seeing in the economy or what they're not seeing, which is not causing them necessarily to raise their forecasts? I mean, what what has changed? Yeah. Well, in I the think past it's the commentary. Uh -huh. I think it's the commentary. I disagree with Steve. I think the Fed. This has been known and out there for a long time. I think the trade thing is start. That's what the commentary is about. The commentary is about the trade situation and what that's doing to prices. And and I think this is overdone. But th think about what, what Texas Instruments said last night. They they talked about their concern. Is this the top of of, of the cycle for for semis? On, or on top of that is their macro weakness. In other words, they, they basically told us we were concerned about the cycle, and we said we've got macro on top of that. And I think people were worried about the Fed moving too fast when they moved too right. slow before are now going to basically push us over the edge because that's what they do. But, Karen, isn't it conspicuous that those two dates are those the, the, the highs, basically, in the S&P? And when we rally 4% off the low, you get anything that's Fed-related, you wind up getting this onslaught of selling in the market, anything Fed-related. Now, I get it. China's moving in markets, too. But the right. Fed really seems to have the finger of the Maybe for that one particular day? Maybe. But this is. But these are big days. These are the days that have created the market sell-off. So you think today was a Fed day? No, I think October 17th was. Sorry, Steve, are you questioning why we're, right. are we overreacting no, to think, the Fed? No, is that, I, I think that the markets are definitely overreacting to the Fed. Now, I don't know if they're. Overreacting but are you to the saying point of I, I think that the uh, Fed is is getting hawkish by the day, or at least cementing their well, feet. I, I think. But, well, I mean, if the Fed is is here, and and the market comment, the commentary that we're getting from corporate America indicates that the economy, or seems to indicate that the economy is somehow weakening, or may right. not be as clearly well, on the an upward trajectory, question. or that they're having a lot of price. You know, if you have the Fed keeping on their path. It's that's all real, about the that Fed. That could be a real headwind. I mean, you got two this things diverging. Yeah, exactly. This is all about the Fed. It was all about the Fed on the way up. So it's all about the Fed on the way down. And if anything, the Fed has gone from being accommodative and somewhat neutral. And forget what they're officially saying. Their, their tone has said, we're actually ready to go past 2%. So yeah, that's something neutral. that the market is not forgetting. Obviously, the president is not forgetting. And that's adding to the rancor. The president himself has said, I have no, I'm not an economist, but he's said himself on a number of occasions, this is the greatest economy mm -hmm. in the history of the republic. His and the words, Fed is the biggest problem. His words, not mine. But, I mean, so at, at negative real rates or f zero real rates, why are real rates zero in this country if we're the greatest economy ever? I mean, we should be. This should we be the greatest economy ever because rates. the market has had one of the greatest runs in this short period of time. I agree, and, but, by the way. So, by the way, so just do the math after this pullback. S&P is up 25% since elections. You annualize that over a two-year basis, you know, roughly we're about 13% a year. I mean, that's a good run, but that's not a heroic run. So we've already given back a lot. Small cap stocks, which were the barometer of this market moving higher, went up 46 percent. I've now come back, to, back down 24 percent. 
So we've had a major pullback, folks, and, and the indices kind of belied. And the, the average hedge fund service. has given back their entire year in October. So the indices have given back the, their entire year, and now you have the average hedge fund that was up an average three percent going into okay. October is now down on so the year. So let me ask you this question. I've asked you this question before, but I think the answer could be different tonight. If the Fed seemed to back off hiking in December, what would the market reaction be? Higher. Guy, what do you think? Knee-jerk higher, and knee-jerk meaning a couple Good days. Question. And I think over the term, I think the market would say, wait a second, what's really going on here? I think it would be really negative. Really? They put themselves in a position where backing off is negative so the same and moving that you forward gave me is negative. No, I'm not going to. You're going to ask me a month from now, I'll give you the same answer. Right, That's, no, I, I thought maybe things might have changed no, I don't think given what we're say hearing from corporate America. Quickly, it's not the, it, I'll say it, I might be wrong. It's not the Fed's job to make the market go up and down. They no. shouldn't even be focused on what happened. I'm sure they are, but it's not, it's not in their purview. Yeah, but, but the whole idea is they should, they, I think market participants want them to be more data dependent, not robotic. And that's what, what data, the market's though? thinking. What data? I think that's what's important. I, I think that I, I, they oh, shouldn't sorry, be, attention, pay, be paying attention to what the market's moving up or down this right. amount. Right, but they, should they be paying attention to what companies are saying on conference calls? I about think demand and about prices and about and input costs I don't think what they're pressures. saying on conference calls should take the Fed away from exiting this grand plan that is a very big to-do to get out of, and they've been talking the about problem. this plan. They've been is talking the, about this plan for, obvious for reasons, two or they three can't. years. They I think can't. that's what's scary. That, no, if no. the market, of course, no, Trump no, doesn't like they're it. They're getting it, out of this grand plan, and I think that's what's spooking the markets, that there's no hesitation so Can I on answer your question? Yes. I want to answer Mel's question. I, I actually probably feel differently. I, I, I think if the Fed showed some sign of, of more restraint here, let's face it, folks, it was just a month ago or six weeks ago, we were talking about 3.5% GDP. We were talking about the market was moving too quick. The economy was too strong. If the Fed actually tells you that they're going to back off a little bit, uh, I think the market will, will understand where industrial production is in this country, where, in fact, earnings are, where, in fact, the labor force is, where consumption trends are right now, which are actually quite good. We're nowhere near a recession. So if the Fed backs off, I think there's plenty of ammunition for the market to get a sign of relief. Mm -hmm. Most of this is positioning, by the way. I, I think it comes down to we, we, we have to get to a place where the bulls were, are not overly complacent and we get back to a place where markets actually are a little bit fearful of where valuations are and where the Fed is going to be. But we're not even there yet, I don't think. We're not. No. Okay, so show of hands, who says this dip that we've seen over the past, let's say, since the month of October, is a dip you buy? I still if think you're an investor in index would, funds, I you would. buy this dip. Yeah, am I going to pick the bottom? Absolutely not, for sure. I've proven that over and over and over again. However, over the long term, it has worked out every single time. One interesting thing, Morgan Stanley out with a note, I think it was today, maybe it was yesterday, pointing out that buying the dip has been a losing strategy in 2018. Every time you bought the dip this year, unlike all the other times in the rally, you've actually been down. So just, you know, that's for what it's worth, even though long-term investors are thinking differently and they're thinking about good companies in sure. good ways, um, just buying the dip blindly has not worked. I think you have seasonality that uh, what I thought was going to be a bigger effect, and I think that you have that on your side, but I do think that you're going to have a lot of weekdays ahead of you before we get to that buy the dip mentality. You got to realize where we are in this marketplace. If you look at an extended chart, we are really overextended for a bull. What do you say? No, I think, listen, again, a couple Fridays ago, I said another 7 or 8%. Karen, look, you know, we had a whole conversation about it. That's when the S&P was down 5%. It's probably down, I think there's another 4, 3, 4% left on the downside. I don't think that's anything wrong with that. No. I mean, can it overshoot? Absolutely. I think You'll know that the whites of their eyes will come in the form of the VIX north of 30. And I think mm -hmm. the VIX closed around 25 for today. All right. For more on today's massive sell-off and what could come next, let's bring in Julian Emanuel, the chief equity and derivative strategist at BTIG. Julian, you've been sitting on the desk here uh, for the entire, since the start of the show, basically. You raised your hand when I said who would be buying this dip. <laughs> yeah. Why? We're, we're buying this dip. So if you look at the last four days, what has happened is we have transitioned in the markets from uncertainty to fear, okay? And all of us sitting around this table know that if you look at the last 30 years, every time you buy fear, it works out, okay? We don't think it's different this time. So what we've been telling clients is you look at last week's low, which was 27.10, that sort of space between 27.10 and you pointed out the number, the year's low at 25.32 is where you've got to be patiently looking for the stocks and the sectors and the situations and you want, that you want to own um, because the fear at some point is going to subside. And going back to the Fed, um, you know, we talked about this when we were with you a, a number of weeks ago. 
We felt at that time that the Fed was probably in the process of overdoing it. Uh, we called for the Fed not to hike in, in December. We continue to think that uh, taking a pass in December is the right thing to do, particularly since there are eight shots at raising rates next year right. because you're going to go to a press conference at every meeting, not four. Sure. Um, but in terms of saying that taking a pass in December would be the right thing to do, do you think that's what the Fed would actually do or that's just what you would want the Fed to so, do? So we think the likelihood, you know, clearly the president has boxed the Fed into a bit of a corner. The minutes from last week have boxed the Fed into a bit of a corner. We think the likeliest outcome is that they hike in December and it's a dovish hike. Basically, we're going to look at the data, we're going to sit back, and we're going to see how it develops, well, which could, in effect, have the same positive effect on the market. Why do you think that that's even in the realm of possibility, considering all the Fed speak we've had in recent days? We had Rafael Bostic of the Atlanta Fed just yesterday effectively saying that the bar would be extremely high for the Fed not to raise rates, given the Atlanta Fed's raised forecast for growth for the next couple of years. I mean, of course, they're data dependent, he says, but I mean, the likelihood of, of not taking that path would be very, very low. You, you look at economist consensus right now, the numbers 2.5 in 2019 and 1.9 in, in 2020 versus 3 plus this year. That is not accelerating growth. You look at inflation break-evens, they are not accelerating. The commentary is one thing, but it's very anecdotal. The question is, you look at the prices of automobile manufacturers, the stocks yeah. yielding 7%, trading on six times earnings. Are they going to be able to pass on the price increases to the consumer? I think the stocks are telling you that's not going to happen. But if you were Jay Powell at that press conference in December and somebody asks you, hey, Jay, why did you raise rates in December? But uh, effectively issue a dovish statement about future guidance. What data are you seeing? What data would you point to that would indicate that there is a reason to back off of, of hikes, you know, early in 2019? Well, we certainly saw a very slow housing number today. Okay. We've seen those stocks come off. And if you look in the past, the housing stocks coming off, and that looks like a very significant top that we saw in January. Obviously, there could be rallies, but, you know, they tend to lead the broader market and the economy by a year and a half to two years. And the fact is, if the Fed thinks it can thread the needle between causing asset prices to moderate and causing the economy to stay intact, that's a needle that hasn't been threaded in over 30 years. <laughs> it's not his fault. I mean, it's not, it's not Powell's fault. I mean, he's not looking to thread any needle. He's just trying to get back to some semblance of normalcy. But I'll ask you a question. If the Fed doesn't move, or if they move and get dovish, suggesting that maybe there's a weakening. If there's a weakening in the economy, why are you then you're so bullish on the stock market? Because, again, you're at this point where emotion is taking over. Uh, you're quickly, where's there? Where, I don't see any fear. What's fear? Market's down, what, 6 7% from an all-time high? Uh, I, would, I would say that uh, over the last couple of days, particularly this afternoon, the selling uh, took on a note of uh, indiscriminate selling. Um, okay, it, it's uh, harder uh, to we, see. On, we don't have a commercial tonight, which is why I'm playing the game with you. But Fine. on the way up, when stocks go up indiscriminate, we never talk about, you know, it's crazy that stocks go up every single day and the machines are taking stocks higher. It's only on down days when we blame indiscriminate selling. Indiscriminate buying is just as prevalent in this market, but we never put a bullseye on the back of that. Same thing, just work in the other direction. Except the speed is much It greater. always goes down faster than it goes always up. Always goes down faster. And, you know, what, what we would say is when you look at it, we raised the, the flag here several weeks ago because we felt interest rates in general were getting to the point where it was going to affect the stock market. And I think that's conclusive evidence to the extent that you still have earnings. And, yes, this may be peak earnings at 20-plus percent growth. But if we're going to do 7, 8, 9, 10 percent next year, at this level of interest rates, at this valuation, stocks are going higher. Is, but, there, is there any chance, sorry, Tim, that Fed can go an eighth and sort of split the difference and then just say we're going to be data dependent? Does that try to thread the needle? 
I think that would confuse people. That, yeah, that would be way <laughs> okay. too way too. Right. I like it. Too cute by half. Okay. Like we, we haven't had <laughs> fractions uh, since 2000 on the stock exchange. I think the names would be too much. Yeah. So, but now. Julian, let me ask Guy's question a little bit differently because I don't I don't hear you saying screaming boy. I, I hear what well, you say. Well, he's S&P 3000. Well, okay, so that that is aggressive, but but I'll, I'll even forget that outlook. And I'll just say what I hear you saying is there's fear out there right now. Um, pick a spot. Um, markets are actually overreacting in some way. And we think there's a place to step in here and buy. And you're not saying pound the table right now. But let me go back just to Texas Instruments because I think it was a very important message for the market. Not only were semiconductors down 7 or 8% today as a group, but they were talking about the impact on industrial and automotive. And basically the read through for, for that is that some of the most important parts of our economy, some of the biggest parts of the market that actually have shown the greatest weakness, don't show any signs of recovery. So part of the problem- As a stock or the business, sorry. The, the, those, those sectors right now are under a lot of pressure and we're seeing falling demand in the form of chip stocks that are basically uh, going to give you that gauge. So when, when you think about these types of responses in earnings season, what has troubled us is the fact that companies that are beating on EPS and revenue, if they don't guide positively, their stocks get slammed anyway. We're seeing that. All. What that tells you is that at this point where the market is, it is less about the ability of earnings to lift stock prices and unfortunately more about what the policy response is yeah. with regard to the Fed and with regard to resolving or improving trade relations with China. Julian, thank you. It's great to have you here. Always Julian a Emanuel. Man. Of, of a calm Beach. voice. Yeah. A calm voice always. Calm voice. All right. Very so, nice. so what, Karen, what's on your buy list? You said you would buy the dip. What's on yeah, your list? Yeah, what's on my buy list? Bank America, absolutely on my buy list. Acted ter All the banks have acted terribly, but absolutely on my buy list. Um, UPS. That's on my buy list. Um, you know, the retailers have hung in pretty well. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot I like, but, but I don't feel like they're as uh, just puked out. Viacom, also on my buy list. What's nice. on your buy list? I already own the home builders, but I think I would get longer in Lennar. I mean, Lennar has just been beaten up. The whole sector has been beaten up atrociously. Uh, also, Amazon. Mm -hmm. Amazon, you get a couple of chances to buy that. Granted, this thing is a beast on the upside if you look at an extended chart on that one. But I think on a discounted bid on that one, that, that's probably a good place to go. All right. We have a quick programming note here. Be sure to tune in to CNBC's special market coverage of this sell-off. That is tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. A lot of us here on this desk will be there. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We've got an earnings alert on advanced micro plunging after hours. This is semi-stocks, as Tim has mentioned, have gotten absolutely wrecked in the sell-off. Let's get to Bob Bassani at the NYSC for more. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. AMD is one, of course, the two big semiconductor manufacturers, the other one being Intel. The top line for AMD, a tad light, $1.65 billion in revenues versus expectations of $1.7 billion. Now, that's down 6% quarter over quarter. It was led lower by the graphics revenue in the computing and graphics division. That's the largest division of AMD. It has about 60% of their revenues. It includes the desktop and the notebook processors and the chipsets. Earnings 13 cents, that was a penny short of expectations. The big problem, though, is the revenue guidance, as it always is with these chip stocks. 1.45 billion versus expectations of 1.6 billion. Gross margins look pretty good, 40% versus 
38% expected. Now, this falls on a really bad day for semis in general. Texas Instruments revenue fell short of forecast. It also issued weaker than expected guidance, which it attributed to a slowdown in demand among semiconductors across all of its markets. The main semiconductor ETF we've talked about for days now, SMH, saw twice normal volume on a nearly 7% decline. That is its worst day since November 2008. And the broader basket of semis still in bear market territory, down 22% from its 52-week highs. Despite today's debacle, AMD is still the best-performing stock in the S&P 500 this year. It's up 121% year-to-date. We should also know, by the way, the tech-heavy Nasdaq now firmly in correction territory, down about 12% from its recent highs. Finally, a quick programming note. We'll hear more from AMD CEO Lisa Su when she appears on Squawk on the Street tomorrow, 9 a.m. Eastern time. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob. Thank you. Bob Pisani at the NYSE. You know, taking a look at the after hours reaction to AMD, what's interesting, what stands out to me is Intel is actually trading higher by about one and a half percent um, granted on light volume, but it is up. Yeah, but it's also getting throttled over the last couple of weeks. Yes. So maybe it's up because people say, well, maybe AMD is not eating Intel's lunch. So maybe there's some rotation back, which sort of sort of makes sense to me in terms of where AMD can go. Look, and I was bullish on the way up and I was bullish at the top and I was bullish on the way. So I've been right and I've been very wrong. But now you have to ask yourself, all right, where does it make sense? I think she'll do a good job tomorrow explaining the quarter of the CEO. I also think $15, if you go back and look, was a level that we sort of topped out at a number of times earlier this year. So past resistance becomes support. I'll say this, though. Again, Dan's not here, but, you know, the chips are the building blocks of everything. And Taiwan Semi down 4% today. Texas Instruments, Tim mentioned, down another 8%. I mean, chips going down does not sort of augur well for what's going on Broadly. We also had bad news out of a chip, uh, an Apple supplier out of Europe yesterday, AMS, right. which certainly didn't help. We've had DRAM weakness that we've been concerned about. Yeah, Mike Ron even now. talked about, right. So, right. so the entire sector is look, having issues. We're back to September 2017 levels in, in, in the SOX. So that tells you something, despite the fact that the economy, uh, well before this, uh, moment right now was was chugging along and we weren't questioning the cyclicality of where enterprise was reinvesting in their businesses and then all these other ancillary exciting parts whether it was gaming whether it was blockchain there's all these parts um, of, of the chip space that have been reasons for people I, I think AMD frankly got ahead of itself that may be easy to say now after it's pulled back 35 percent but but you know this this is where should the stock trade you know 25 times this is a $25 stock it's still up 100 percent. Still up 100 percent. Yeah. So than, it's, yeah. It's, to Tim's point, all those things that they, they these chips were trading off of. If you look back on Micron and you overlay a chart of DRAM pricing, there was a disconnect. You overlay the chart of DRAM pricing now and you see where it should have gone. It should have followed that. That's what Micron usually does. But it got extended on all of those other reasons. So how much of the semiconductor collapse or whatever you want to call it is idiosyncratic to them, oversupply, and then when you have a commodity type, you know, that pricing just falls apart. And how much of that is related to the economy more broadly? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that's, but there's some element of specific, you know, that's specific to the, to the semiconductor. Well, I think the tariffs have a lot, listen, I think the tariffs have a lot, this, again, we like to blame, it's easy to blame the Fed. We can, and, and, and quite frankly, I, again, I say, you like again, to. I like quite to, frankly, but not this Fed, by the way, but, okay. pre, but it's another conversation. With that said, they have nothing to do with DRAM prices and everything that's going on in the, in the chip right. world, nothing whatsoever. The tariffs, on the other hand, have a lot to do with it. So you can't ask the Fed to back off based on tariff talk that might well be exactly the right thing we should be doing. Maybe China is ripping us off. Maybe this is long overdue. What do I know? But there's a cost associated with that, which you brought up the other day. To think that you can play the tariff game and not have market repercussions, you're seeing it now. You can't do it. So basically, the Fed shouldn't be asked to back up no. the administration's policy. I don't even think though it's so. Impacting or potentially impacting the U.S. economy. No, but but the, I don't. Th I agree with Guy wholeheartedly, and I don't think I, I believe in our system here. And I think this Federal Reserve will do what they need to do. Whether that's the right policy now, and it should have been the policy uh, two years ago, is is a debate we're going to continue to have. Uh, but I, I, I do think that the Fed ultimately is going to continue to do what they have to do. Uh, the cyclical story died in March. Let's be clear. That's when the stock started selling off aggressively. All right. Let's get back to AMD. It is down by about 24 percent right now off the back of earnings. Let's go off the chart to Todd Gordon of TradingAnalysis.com. Todd, how's it looking? 
Hey, Melissa, uh, AMD was really trying to hold it 23, 24, 25. That was the key support from my technical point of view. I was just trading 17 and a half. That is no bueno. Very big drop. The drop from uh, the highs that we've seen in the mid-30s is quite justified here. So if we take a look at this longer-term chart, and we've actually looked at this. This is not quite the one I'm looking for, but we're going to go back. So um, we're going to start shorter-term first. This is down on the daily chart. Okay, we can see that all technical algos are going to be watching this uptrend here. We tried to get a bounce. We couldn't. We fell below. That's right around that $25 mark that I just mentioned. AMD looks like it could go lower. Support from that $8 low earlier this year has been lost. This is the daily. Let's go up to the weekly chart and get the context of exactly where AMD has come from. Maybe I could put some reasoning behind this failure. Uh, same chart. Let's hit the weekly if we've got it. It's an amazing chart. I really want to show it to you. Um, it's just a long. No, that's not it. We're gonna we're gonna roll with it. But anyways, if you go back to even the 2001 high in AMD, you connect the 2007 high trend line. All you guys can do this at home. We just failed at that uptrend resistance. So go look at that. Here's the SMH. These are the holders. And what I find quite interesting from the credit crisis low is we've had a very nice, beautiful, symmetrical uptrend and pullback. Notice the first pullback here, 29%. The next one here in 16, 27%. When I captured these charts about halfway through the day, we we're at a 27% decline. So this is still a, a, a little ways to go here. Actually, excuse me, no, let's go down from the weekly down to the daily. We're not quite to the 27%. Right now we're at about 21% off the highs in SMH. That 27% metrical <laughs> decline will come in at 82 in the SMH. So what that means basically is if you start to break through 82 on the SMH, that counterbalances all the corrections we've seen in the course of this bull trend. At that point, for me, I would say bull trend over in semis, but not until you break through that $82 mark as we're showing right here. So just looking at those size of the pullbacks will, for me, are indicative of if the uptrend is still intact. All right. So, Todd, you know, we've been talking about semiconductors in the sector being sort of a a canary in the coal mine when it comes to the broader economy in terms of how it feeds into all these different end markets. Have you seen any sort of correlation? I mean, when you take a look at a chart and it looks ugly in semis, do you think, uh-oh, you know, that's confirmation that, that industrials and transports and all these other sectors that are economically sensitive aren't um, going to see a bounce either? Well, I, I, for me, I'm seeing the biggest relationship of semis to overseas and Asian. We've talked about the decline in the Chinese markets. Uh, you look at the FXI, you look at the EEM. I mean, Chinese technology, I think, is highly correlated to these semis. But turning it back to the to the U.S., no, I mean, I feel like the semis is such a such a uh, dispersed uh, sector industry group here. I'm personally long Intel against the 43 reporting earnings tomorrow. So mm -hmm. I see more of an Asian story dragging the semis down and uh, not so much in terms of relationship back home for me. All right. Thanks for that, Todd. Todd Gordon of TradingAnalysis.com. We do want to um, get you caught up on the markets in case you are just tuning in. It is 5.30 p.m. on the East Coast, an hour and a half after the regular close. And if you're just joining us, just tuning in, it was an absolutely brutal day on Wall Street. The Dow dropping 600 points, closing at the lows of the day. The Dow and the S&P 500 are now negative on the year. The Nasdaq plunging nearly 4.5%, firmly in correction territory, down 12% from its recent high. With today's sell-off, 7 out of 11 sectors are in a correction. The material sector is in a bear market. It is down 20% from its high. Going into tomorrow's session, Steve Grasso, what should we be looking at? So you have to see if today's lows hold for tomorrow, and you also have to look at those retracement levels from the February low, 25.32, up to the 29.40 high. It spits out a 26.29 level. That's the one to key in on because that's the last level of support before we go back to the February low. I think the worst thing, and this is, we talk about this a lot, but the worst thing that can happen, in my opinion, is we open up higher tomorrow. I mean, that yeah. would be, to me, really bad. I think if you're bullish, most people are. You want to see an open down 300 or so Dow points, maybe 40 S&P handles. Maybe we'll get that VIX how to about a 30 a futures, level. How about, that futures, would be okay. how about a, a futures plunge overnight that starts to recover by the morning? Something right. like Which that. Which to me down is, and then up. Yeah, I mean, that's another scenario that we see. I, I also think we have to watch Europe right now. We have to watch these spreads on BTPs. What are those? Those are the Italian 10-year bonds or the 10-year BTP. And I think you need to watch those spreads, folks. I think you also need to watch the dollar. Um, we're getting near 15-month highs in the dollar. We're within about 30 pips or, you know, uh, percent, 30 you know, basis points. 
points on the dollar of, of getting back to where we were uh, in 18 months ago. The dollar is a sign of flight to quality. It is not necessarily a sign of anything more than also the differential between the Fed and the ECB. And when that gets wider and wider, we have more risk out there. Yeah. Karen, what do we look for tomorrow? I, well, I don't like the up market except that scenario, which I could see if China uh, right now would you would think China would open a lot lower, lower yeah. and that Europe would open lower. But I would like to see the, a sell off there that that where there's a bottom there and, and a bounce that that's sort of acceptable. I mean, there's been some great earnings here, right? We've had very good earnings after the bell. We didn't have Microsoft drop a donut, thank God. We had Visa with some very good numbers. We've had big, important companies remind us that their business is actually decent. And on top of those names, uh, Tesla and Ford also both out after the bell. Both are, in fact, higher after the close. For more, let's get to Phil LeBeau, who's doing double duty on both Ford and Tesla. Phil. And Melissa, let's start first off with Tesla. That earnings call, by the way, coming up in about an hour or so. When you look at Tesla, it comes down to this. Could they have turned a profit in the third quarter? Yes, they could, and they did. 290 a share, way above what everybody else was expecting out there. The consensus was for a loss of 19 cents a share. So that's one of the takeaways uh, when you look at Tesla. Also, the liquidity goes from $2.2 billion in cash on hand up to $3 billion. And the Model 3 production plans, they have been reaffirmed. So as you take a look at shares of Tesla, and it's had a nice move after hours, let's see what happens when the conference call starts out. And let's see what the tone and the attitude is coming from Elon Musk on that conference call, which starts at 6.30. Quickly on Ford, that conference call has just begun. And when you look at Ford, it's all about North America continuing to be the profitable division that keeps the entire company floating. The rest of the markets, international, they're a mess. Big losses there. They have, however, reaffirmed their full-year guidance. But what's interesting on this call, Melissa, and we're going to be back with some sound from Jim Hackett in a little bit, what do they say about their restructuring plans? There was nothing, nothing at all in the earnings release about what they plan to say, when they plan to give more details. And if there are not a lot of details given on this conference call, don't be surprised if the tenor of questions from analysts gets a little snarky because they were that way last quarter. All right. Um, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago for us breaking down the numbers from both Ford and Tesla. Again, both stocks are trading sharply higher uh, in the after-hour session. I don't know where we want to start, Guy. They were uh, big quarters for both the companies. Well, I think that you start with Ford. I mean, so revenue, third quarter revenue miss. I don't know if that's a big deal or not. I think the guide for the full year is pretty good, though. So now you have to ask yourself, does valuation finally start to matter? Stock's up 5.5%. I think bulls will say, you know what, maybe that's the line to send. Maybe we're starting to see a turnaround. I think Adam Jonas from Morgan Stanley might say something else. I'm inclined to fade the move in Ford, but maybe this is, in fact, the bottom. I mean, if the problem was that we hadn't heard from Jim Hackett what the restructuring plan or the, what the turnaround plan was going to be, and then all of a sudden we have a better-than-expected quarter in a raise, that, that solves the, the problem? I mean, all of a sudden you know, it clarity? It doesn't solve the problem, but again, people... For maybe it's the right reason, maybe it's not. Um, we're obviously now past peak stars and autos, but people have, have considered the automakers guilty until proven innocent in terms of their EPS. Uh, and that's for the last three years, effectively. So um, Ford on a trailing 12 months is about 5.7 times earnings. That's crazy cheap with a 7% dividend yield. So at, at some point, uh, their earnings do matter, but we are still concerned about structural issues with the company. And I think the, the market needs to know. On your buy list, Ford, now at this quarter? No, I mean, I'm long GM. That's not worked, obviously, for a long time. But, you know, Ford did say they dropped their 2020 target tonight. That's not, I mean, maybe people thought they'd never get there anyway, right? So, uh, So the stock's still up. I'd much rather have GM. It's not in the disarray that Ford is. Um... And it's ridiculously cheap as well, I think, with maybe a higher dividend. I'm not quite sure at this price, but that doesn't even matter. Is the dividend safe in Ford? For for GM, yeah, I haven't. I just interviewed an analyst Ford. on Ford, and he said the dividend is not safe. It's not safe. Is not safe. Right. That's the opinion of one that's person. That's the problem. But that's out there, and that's right. a problem. It's been out there. It's that's been, a, it's been yeah. a rumor. And it, it, when you look back on Ford, and you look back to the next support level being the 08 lows that are cut in half from here, it's pretty scary. But the other side of me is the trader type that when you look at a stock that's been so beaten up, down 33 percent. Pretty much everything is out there. You might be able to get a laggard pop in the name. 
for I, Tesla, for Tesla, we're we're seeing a pop in the after-hour session of more than 12 percent. We saw a pop yesterday, and the day 12 before, 12 and a half percent. Right? We? No. Yeah. Is this, is this a three-day yeah, move yeah, of like 30? I don't, 30, know. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I was thinking the after-hours yesterday. Got to give Andrew left a lot. I mean, we kill him when he's wrong, but you got to you got to give him credit when he's right. And he came out with a pretty positive note. And here's the stock now, $322. So what's my instinct in this? I said it a couple weeks ago. Sometimes you get yourself backwards on a name. This is a name I've gotten backwards on. But if I were to just look at this, I'm saying this, this move to the upside is setting up for the capital raise. And then how will the stock trade if, in fact, they announce that? How will it trade post that comment? That's what I would be Isn't watching. Isn't this move, though, saying no capital raise? I don't know. I mean, I think this I, I move don't, and, and, and the free cash flow that well, you just heard about flow, right, is, is right, telling you maybe, we're good. Maybe not so we're good. Now, the cynics might say, hey, you know, amazing how suddenly we found a lot of free cash flow in this machine that didn't exist before at a time when we're going to have to roll a lot wow. of debt. It's gotten very expensive for, for us on our credit. Anyway, that's that's the let's, let's talk more about that, um, because Tesla earnings wouldn't be complete without our fast money friend, Gene Munster, <laughs> founder of Loop Ventures. He is uh, here on set. And let's get right to that point, because that was a real highlight. Um, cash flow from operating activities, one point four billion dollars. And this is mainly due to significantly improved volumes and profitability of Model 3. It wasn't because of various changes in various working capital items. There wasn't weren't any shell games or pulling forward. What does that say about the need for a capital raise in your view? I think it's unlikely that they're going to have to raise money for the fundamentals, the operations of the business over the next year. Now, maybe as they progress for China, China. and build this third gigafactory, but that's a whole separate thing. And you got to give Tesla credit. Despite all the distractions, they delivered on what you just said, this better profitability of Model 3. They talked about in their letter about 30 percent improvement in the, uh, the, the efficiencies of building Model 3. That's a key uh, element to sustain profitability, which is the critical question here. They've gotten scale, in other words. They reduced the labor hours needed to produce the Model 3 by 30 percent in the quarter. That's which a, yep, would indicate that's that the ramp is in, intact, which would indicate what about margins in your view? Because that seemed to be another sort of thing that Wall Street was hung up on. What will happen with the margins here? So you can never mail anything in. Nothing's ever is certain in the world of Tesla. But this is the most encouraging results just because the opportunity around the sustainability of profitability. Uh, not only that, that's one piece, the manufacturing piece, but there's also a second piece to it, which is demand. And I think one of the, within the letter, they talked about the average trade-in. So this is people who are purchasing Model 3s. Their previous car was purchased new at $35,000, and they're buying a $55,000 car. That is a powerful statement about how this car is appealing. They don't have this mass market price yet, but appealing to people willing to stretch for that. So when you think about sustained profitability, there are two parts of the equation demand and the manufacturing piece, and they seem to be making a sizable step forward on that. On the de oh, demand sorry. part of it, of the 455,000 net reservations reported in August 2017, only 20%, less than 20% actually canceled. So people are actually sticking by um, the 1,000 bucks that they put in initially back in 2017. Yeah, and my question to Gene, and it's, you can't go back in time, I get it. But prior to funding secured, this was a $360 stock coming off a pretty great quarter. The stock was trading higher all on its own. So I'll ask you this question. If you back out funding secured given this quarter, should we be significantly higher? Could, could we see a stock that might actually be 420 based on this quarter today? If Elon didn't mess it up over right. the last three months, the stock would be above 400 today. And I think that's based on, you think about the opportunity, a $60, $70 billion market cap relative to the trajectory that they're on. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that that's where the stock's going to go in the near term, but I think this company has a much more powerful vision, this concept of accelerating the globe's adoption of renewable energy, which has largely been lost over the last three months based on uh, his behavior. And so I definitely think the stock would be higher if not for that. But even in terms of the short term, I mean, if you sort of, extrapolate this quarter into the end of the year. Let's just say that they can continue to ramp at this rate or somewhere near that. They continue the cash flow to be somewhere around where it was in the third quarter. And then you throw on top of that the potential catalyst of having to name a new chairman and independent directors. And that has to happen within 45 days of that SEC settlement. So it's got to happen in the next month or so. I mean, where do you see the stock going? I think that there's gonna, it's going to move higher in the near term. I think that there's still going to be this bear case that this demand is propped up by the tax credits that are at $7,500 going to go to $3,700. So my point, Melissa, is that there's still going to be a bear bull debate, but I expect when they report their December quarter to see another step up in terms of the stock. Yeah. 
So, Gene, I, the demand has obviously been proven by these numbers, at least for this size, you know, for, for this for this cycle. Um, and you've got arguably a, a, a jacked up or a specked up Model 3 uh, with a slightly higher ASP um, that once you get through that demand, I, I mean, I'm going to play cynic, as you expect I might, and, and, and say, I don't know that the demand is there. I get the fact that there's a lot of people right now in this range that want to buy a very cool car and reach, um, because we knew those people were there already. I mean, is that fair? I see it a little bit different. I think at the end of the day, you talk about 400,000 reservations and 80% of them keeping that. That's unprecedented in the automotive world. So uh, I think that there's, there's data that would suggest that the demand is, in fact, real. And at the end of the day, it comes down to this. Is the car substantially better than anything else that's out there? And uh, even though I don't own one, I think that people who purchase them uh, would suggest that it is. And that will continue to stoke demand. Great. The quarter, Gene. I reluctantly give it an A. And the reason why I reluctantly give an A... Because the call I, hasn't happened yet. Well, the call hasn't <laughs> happened Yeah, You don't want to get in front of that. Also, I just tend to, to try to shy away from uh, great inflation. But you need to look at this in the context of a Tesla quarter. This is, in fact, a company that did what they said in a little bit more despite a massive distraction. So it deserves an A. Let me ask you a little bit more broadly while we have you. In terms of the tech sell-off that we've seen, you follow very closely a lot of the names that have got hit the hardest. Are there any that you would say, you know what, that's worth a buy? I think Tesla's a buy here. I think Apple's a buy. They haven't been hit in particular as hard. I think uh, Amazon, if you have a longer-term view, I still think you should veer clear of Facebook and uh, Twitter, for example. Those, uh, I don't think, I think there's more structural things that are uh, headwinds for them. And a Netflix? Uh, I'm still uh, somewhat neutral on that. I think given the valuation, what Apple's coming out with, um, I still think they've got some headwinds. All right, Gene, great to see you. Thank you so Thank much. You. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. How would you trade Tesla? So I think Gene said something very telling to Guy's question. He said, until Elon messed it up. And I think that's the risk in the name now. So you have these pops in a stock that's heavily shorted. But you get Elon one sentence away or an one event away, away from screwing it up to guys that are bullish, cult-like people who follow the stock, and I think it's good for 50 to 75 to the downside. Yeah. Would the stock go up if they did a capital raise? I would say would not. Would it still go higher as it has in the past, Guy? Well, you these guys said they're probably right. Maybe given this quarter, they don't need it. I yeah. mean, they are trying to build a $2 billion in a plant in China, but maybe that is a year or so out. Maybe by then they won't need a raise. I, it's, it's a, they pulled a rabbit out of the hat. I think you would agree. These numbers sort of came from nowhere. So my question to you and what Steve addressed. I disagree. I think that this is kind of what they were setting up for this, uh, in terms of uh, reaching this higher profitability. They've been setting this up. No one believed them because well, that's, of yeah. Elon's behavior, but they've been telling this. This was Fair enough. All right. Gene, thanks again. Gene Munster, Blue <laughs> Ventures, Guy. I love how the guest brings himself back in, by no, the way. No, Guy brought him back in. I blame Guy. Oh, I blame me. Well, I, I think it was great. We have an earnings anyway. alert on Visa. That is higher in the after-hour session. Let's get to Deidre Bosa in Vancouver with the details. Deidre. Melissa, this is really a story about a strengthening consumer spending in a strengthening U.S. economy, uh, higher wages, low unemployment, lower taxes. That's all driving people to spend more on their credit and debit cards. And that, in turn, benefits Visa because Visa takes a cut of transactions that it processes. It also earns a fee on payments that occur on its huge global payments network. Last quarter, total payments volume jumped 11 percent, while the number of processed payments grew 12 percent, excuse me, CFO Vasant Prabhu telling us exclusively that he expects these same factors to drive growth in the upcoming year. He said that with the tailwind of strong global economies and robust consumer spending enhanced by the growth strategies we've outlined, we look forward to another strong fiscal year. Now, the analyst call did kick off at 5, and Moshi Khatri at Wedbush tells us that he's looking for a few things. One, more color on the health of the consumer, what's factored into next year's guidance, the effective tax rate for next year, traction in the B2B market, and also an update on its Visa Europe integration. Another analyst, Lisa Ellis at Moffitt Nathanson, says that she wants to hear about competition, how Visa will close the gap with MasterCard because MasterCard has been outperforming on nearly every major metric for the past year. Melissa. All right, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa in Vancouver for us. Karen, does this help the payment space, which of late yeah. had been getting hit? Yes, it does. I mean, I'm long MasterCard. Um, I mean, they trade very much together despite the, the little differences. I think it does... 
It does help also that the consumer is strong. The consumer spending, that part of the story is very much intact. And the read through to retail and other things is strong from that. Yeah, the 11% the growth number, is, it's impressive on payments. And, and they continue to be, in some ways, non-correlated. Um, but if, if the CEO is talking about the strength and the tailwind of the global economy, I mean, our, we're not talking about that. So let's be clear about that. Um, I think the consumer is going to look rip-roaring through the holiday season, and I think we're going to have some problems. Um, I think Visa is actually cheap to MasterCard for, for whatever reasons. It trades about three turns cheaper. And if you put the same multiple on it, this is $175 stock. All right. Well, still ahead, if you're just joining us, it was a sea of red on Wall Street today. The drop um, was 600 points, negative on the year for the Dow. We'll have much more on what is driving the sell-off when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Getting slammed today, the Nasdaq entering correction while the Dow and S&P erase all of their year-to-date gains. Let's get to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob. The important thing about today is that we are continuing to see fears about a general global growth slowdown led by China and tariff issues and, to a lesser extent, concerns about an aggressive move by the Federal Reserve to continue to hike interest rates. If you take a look at the Dow movers today, what's the poster child for global growth? tariffs, China trade issues, uh, it's industrial stocks. What are the weakest sectors today? United Technology, Caterpillar, and 3M. Banks have also been acting terribly. Goldman Sachs was another good example today. Although I would note yesterday, many of the regional banks rose 3% on better earnings, and we're down 3% today. So no consistency in terms of trading on the banks. You notice the much more defensive nature of the market up all week. Most of the defensive names are McDonald's, Verizon, Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble. In fact, defensive rotation has been really noticeable. And I don't mean just in consumer staples, but you could see it this week in utilities, real estate investment trusts. Uh, we also see, saw moves in gold as well. It generally has been acting uh, better on top of that. In terms of where the volume is, and this is what I look for, heavy volume exchange-traded funds here, you again saw moves in banks. You saw them in the semiconductors. You saw them uh, in energy stocks and energy ETFs. And we also saw very heavy volume in biotech. Now, that is not a really global group at all, but it was a big market leader coming into the month and has had a, frankly, awful October in general. So where are we? What's been going on? The two major stories that the market is dealing with is China slowing and the Fed rate hikes. There are other issues that are out there, but they're somewhat peripheral right now. Higher costs, the dollar strength. A, a, a interesting government change in Italy, a populist government in Italy, and the potential isolation of Saudi Arabia. This is an awful lot for the markets to deal with. There are many, many issues here. But again, concentrate on China slowing tariffs and the Fed hiking rates aggressively. Melissa, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Bob Bissani. Let's key in on the staples, which has seen a bit in today's session. Take a look at the likes of a Procter & Gamble, Clorox, Kimberly-Clark. Um, all of them were higher. Procter & Gamble, of course, had that blowout quarter. Kimberly-Clark had an okay quarter, but managed to uh, close up today. Is it worth paying 24, no, 23 no. times yeah, well, above <laughs> the market multiple for these names? No, I think we're all going to be in accord on this one. Yeah. But Procter & Gamble, given that listen, last quarter was very good, you saw growth that you haven't seen from that company in quite some time. With that said, at 22 and a half times forward earnings, it's an expensive stock. Now you're bumping up against levels. 93 or so was the level, I think, when Nelson Peltz announced his stake, I want to say a year or so ago, I'm probably off of my math, 
and that's where it collapsed from. You got to get through there. But I think at 90 bucks here, at this valuation, in this market environment, I think it's too rich. Some will say, oh, but I want the dividend, the safety of the dividend. Procter & Gamble is a 3.2% dividend. Kimberly Clark is a 3.8% dividend. dividend. Well, GE had a huge dividend at one point. Not that this PG doesn't. I just think the dividend is a a red herring. It absolutely shouldn't be part of the story. I agree with Guy. They're all expensive here. If they had gone into this with much cheaper multiples, I'd say, all right, that's a decent place to hide. This above market multiple by a fair amount doesn't seem safe to hide. if the market continues the way it is, I don't, I don't know about hiding forever, but if the market continues the way it is, I, I think that you could play this sideways at least. At yeah, but what's least. interesting is that, I mean, in a market, in a market sell-off that is picking at the highest multiple yeah, companies and selling them hard, you know, you would think These that eventually they would go after to a toilet paper maker trading at 24 times. Yeah, they're, they're high relative to themselves. And, yeah. and this is all still, I think, residue from when rates are at zero. These stocks should not trade with these multiples when rates are moving higher. They should be compressing more. All right. Um, let's get to Microsoft. That stock is up about 4% in the after-hour session on the back of its earnings. Let's get to Josh Lifton in San Francisco for the details. Hey, Josh. Melissa, I checked in with three guys on the street who cover Microsoft to get their hot take on this report. Let me bring you those comments. Kirk Matern over Evercore ISI saying Microsoft, in his opinion here, is firing on all cylinders, showing strong revenue growth as well as strong leverage in the business model. Commercial cloud revenue, he points out, up 47% to $8.5 billion with increasing profitability. I also checked in with Timothy Horan over at Oppenheimer. Microsoft crushed street revenue estimates, he says. Yes, Azure revenue growth did fall to 76%, but he would pin that on the law of large numbers starting to kick in here. And finally, Michael Turritz over at Raymond James points out Microsoft did beat in all three product groups. And it wasn't just the cloud, he says. On-premise server business up 10%, Windows OEM business up 3%. Satya Nadella on the call saying that the company's off to a strong start to the year. He also talked about the traction Microsoft 365 is seeing. Take a listen to that. Today, it's a multi-billion dollar business that gives our customers a path to the cloud and broadens our reach with new and underpenetrated markets. Customers from large multinationals like Eli Lilly to Rio Tinto first-line field workers to small businesses are all choosing Microsoft 365. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton with his hot take on Microsoft. Could Microsoft help save the tech trade tomorrow? Mm. What do you no. say? No. It, it, this, this, this sell-off is not going to be saved by any one earnings report. This well, is Microsoft, about, Visa, Ford, Tesla. Let's, yeah, put them all, let's put them all together. I, I, I get it. Collectively, they're a, a large portion of the tech trade. But I think this is about the huge macro story. So whether you believe it's the Fed, or whether you believe it's China, or whether you believe it's a, a compilation of all of them, then I would think that you still have a lot of hurdles to go before a handful of, tra- a handful of earnings actually outweigh the macro story. Microsoft is about 12% off it, of its highs. Yeah. Is it a buy here in this market environment? Well, it's funny because it's, it's the highest quality name. And so this is one of these things where it's the classic time to say, don't cut your flowers and keep your weeds. Microsoft is doing what they're supposed to do. You can make arguments that it's not a cheap company, and that's going to be the argument for, for tech. But there's bigger offenders in that category. Um, I, you know, back to your question, though, it, this is 10% of the triple Qs. Visa is another 5% of the triple Qs. So you, you have some technical aspects of how these things could trade better tomorrow. Apple's another 10%. Apple's been very defensive during all this. What Apple's does it done mean, what absolutely does it mean nothing. All fade? Apple's, yeah. been, Apple's been a rock. So you got 25% of that index, um, which, by the way, hasn't traded this far below the 200 days since 2016. So it's oversold. It, it's oversold. This is Dan's MAGA. I, know I was it is. just oh, yeah, going to say, I was sitting here waiting MAGA, patience. it's half a MAGA. What I was going to say was. In a grouchy was, way. In a grouchy way. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say to Mel, who was sitting here? Oh, we got to go. Sorry, MAGA. <laughs> Let's get to Phil Lebeau in Chicago. He's been listening in on Ford's earnings call. Phil, what's the latest? Hey, Melissa, the Q&A is about to start shortly. Uh, it's clear that CEO Jim Hackett has heard from analysts and investors that they would like more details about Ford's turnaround plans. Here's Hackett talking just a few minutes ago. And in answer to the question, what have we been working on this past year? We've developed and implemented a plan to redesign the company to dramatically improve the fitness of the overall business, address those areas of weakness I just pointed out, and prepare Ford to win in a fast-changing future. Our mission is to build on our traditional strengths while capitalizing on the sweeping changes brought about by propulsion technology, shared mobility, and artificial intelligence 
that are all ushering in an era of smart vehicles for a smart world. One thing that's lacking so far, details. And it'll be clear <laughs> that the analysts will ask about that. Melissa, we're going to hop back on the call. Ah, details, shmeetails. <laughs> Phil, thanks. Phil Lebeau in Chicago and Ford, we should uh, note, is sticking by its after-hours gains up more than 5% um, at this time. In terms of what this is telling, is this a Ford-specific story? Is this giving us another data point to counter um, the, the negative data points that we've been getting out of the auto industry overall? No, I think I think this is kind of a relief rally for a company that's, you know, got a lot of short interest and, and still has some issues. Uh, but I, I don't think the, the story at Ford is 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 devastating. Um, and but I, like Karen, have been in GM and it's not been a good trade. Uh, but I feel very comfortable about that balance sheet in that business. I mean, this, this is a, you, the major thing you said what to look out for tomorrow. You want to see if Ford holds this five and a half percent pop. If tomorrow it gives it back. This could be lights out for a company like Ford. I'm talking about stock price for the next two months. You're not going to get a buy the laggard. If it holds it, you could see this beta bounce that you get going into year end. You know what? It's been a very fast, fast money. It's time wow. for the final trade. Come on. Around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, Home Depot to me is as quality as you get in an environment where I think the consumer still has a lot of juice. Home Depot. Or AT&T. Or, a- or AT&T. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Forgot about yeah. that one. I got a lot of things on the buy list, but uh, for the final trade, I like MasterCard on the heels of Visa. It's easy to like MasterCard. I think they're going to move together. But (laughs) the sell-off, particularly the last hour today, was really, really overdone. Steve Grasso. You know one stock that hasn't gotten beaten up during this downturn? Apple. It's only off about maybe 3.5%, 4% off its high, up 27% for the year. Apple, buy. Lisa Sue on, what, Squawk tomorrow? I think she will explain the quarter. I think it goes higher from her explanation. That does it for us. Do not miss our special market sell-off special right here at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.